This is Studio A from Interlochen Public Radio. This is Interlochen Public Radio. I'm Amanda Sewell. The Glen Arbor Arts Center is presenting a project entitled In Translation, which focuses on how visual artists translate the world around them. For their exhibition, they've invited artists to present works about how they, as artists, interpret life in the 21st century. Of course, visual artists aren't the only people who respond creatively to the world around them. To that end, I sat down with Sarah Barup neal gallery manager at the Glen Arbor Art Center, to talk about music. For this conversation, we looked at one specific event that was transformative for nearly all of us who lived through it, the attacks of September 11, 2001. Sarah and I talked about a variety of music and musical responses to 9-11. We've created playlists for several of the songs and pieces that we'll discuss. You can find them all in the post for this podcast at interlockinpublicradio.org. Well, Sarah, let's start with a basic question. Where were you on September 11, 2001? I was in a laundromat in Traverse City on the east side of Traverse City, washing clothing. And I think there was a television in the laundromat, and I watched the planes go into one of the towers. Um, I could not, it was so surreal, I didn't know if I believed it was true. And I left the clothing in the washer to wash. <laughs> and went to have a cup of coffee. And I called my husband, and I said, guess what I just saw? And he said, come home. Um, I said, but I can't. (laughs) The laundry's still in the washer. (laughs) And to this day, the surreality of the whole thing, the mundane aspect of washing your clothes and being feeling tied to that, and then thinking about what I saw on the television. Where were you? I was in my dorm room in college, and my roommate and I never turned the TV on, but for some reason that morning she turned the TV on, and I I, uh, came out of the bathroom and she said, there's something crazy going on in New York, and we just sort of sat and watched it. and And it's just wild to me to think that we we saw it. Otherwise, I would have just gone to class and wondered where everybody was. And I I distinctly remember just going and wandering around the campus with a friend of mine. I I wasn't quite sure what I was supposed to do or where I was supposed to go. Was I supposed to go to class? Like, what's the appropriate reaction? to this kind of thing, like you were saying, like, do I keep doing the normal thing of my laundry and going to class? Or do I go home and wait? Like, what's what are we supposed to do here? And that's one of the reasons why I'm so glad we're able to talk about music that was created in response to 9-11. It's it's such a, a universal thing shared by every person. You don't have to explain what it was. As we're both observing it in the just the heat of the moment, you don't know what's going on. 
and the the music created afterward is a, such a wonderful way to reflect on this this horrific event this this event that is unintelligible at some it's so many levels well let's start out talking about some immediate musical responses to 9-11 starting that day and and that week and i think the response by clear channel is is just fascinating to me and if you're not familiar with this Clear Channel sent out a list of 165 songs that they weren't banned, but they were banned, (laughs) that they asked stations not to play in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. And this list of songs is just fascinating to me. I mean, some are really happy. You have Cool in the Gang's Celebration. dancing in the street but then there were others that were about death that they asked stations not to play like knocking on heaven's door and then you had ones about planes or flying like like leaving on a jet plane and rocket man but then there were some that were just really that seemed to me kind of strange choices like Frank Sinatra's New York, New York, Pat Benatar's Hit Me With Your Best Shot, and even Tom Petty's Free Fallen were all on this list of songs that Clear Channel asked stations not to play. Start spreading the news, I'm leaving today, I want to be a part of it. New York, New York. The list you've gone through, uh, taken out of that context, is so innocuous in so many ways. Have you have you ever been able to figure out what banning these kinds of songs was intended to do? What what magical powers? Did this music have in the context of the 9-11 event? I, I suspect some of it was just sort of a large-scale sort of corporate response to the shock that we were all feeling of, well, we needed to do something, and I'm not quite sure what we're supposed to do. And, and perhaps out of respect for the families, um, they thought maybe we won't play songs that would suggest certain messages. At the same time, uh, some of these others, I-, I wonder, well, did did the Clear Channel executives not trust their audience to understand? Like, th- this is just a song. Sinatra's just singing about New York. It's not necessarily a particular point of view or effect about about the events of 9-11 as well. The whole thing with Clear Channel sets up a paradox for me. There's a common belief that the arts are sometimes just frosting on the cake. Um, Fluff. Maybe they're not all that important. But then on uh, 180 degrees in opposition, so many of the arts get banned. They become um, threatening. 
I mean, the easiest thing to point to is book bannings. Um, and so many times I think of these um, prohibitions are, are, you know, they're offered in the guise of protecting people. Um, but it's just, it's a real schizophrenic thing that people have about the arts and their power or their fluffiness. And this is more than 20 years ago, too. So we're talking about FM radio broadcasts. Now, um, in the 2020s, we we can get any music of any kind, anytime, anywhere that we want. But this was a different time in 2001. They were really talking about what people would hear on the radio when people had a lot fewer options of where and how to get their music as well. And at one time, FM radio was the place, well, when I was a teenager, it was the place I would go late at night to hear contraband and um, the kind of music that wouldn't even come out from underneath a rock on AM radio. Um, It was an edgier place. I will say that as the music director of a radio station where it's it's my job to program the music that people hear on classical IPR, this is definitely something that I have encountered, not nearly on the scale of 9-11, but in my time, I've certainly seen major global events and um, worked with the host to respond in our programming In fact, my very first day as music director in 2019 was the day that Notre Dame in Paris caught on fire. And I had to think on my feet of what's an appropriate musical response to this event. And so we played some music that had been composed by monks at Notre Dame. More recently... We had uh, January 6th, 2021, where something major was happening. None of us were quite sure what was happening when and um, how did we respond musically. I, I think I asked the host to just let's just switch to music that doesn't have any specific message, just nothing with a particular title. Let's skip film music of any kind, anything that could potentially be construed as um, having an opinion, I suppose, or Mm -hmm. having a specific point of view on anything. Let's just let this play out. Let's just play um, pretty neutral middle of the road music and, and see what happens there. And of course, remind people that if they wanted to know what was happening in the breaking news, that they could find it on IPR News Radio on the other side as well across across the hallway here. But it is certainly something that that I think about in terms of how is the music that people are hearing on this station affecting their response to particular global events that are happening. You know, I think. It- uh, January 6th was also another one of those surreal events in our historical um, memory. And as you were talking, the thing I was wondering about from your um, perspective here at Interlocking Public Radio, what role does the music play when you're, these, these events are thrust on you 
And there's no playlist for January 6th. And so I'm hearing you talk about not wanting to choose music that has a particular point of view or perspective. Is that to kind of get your sea legs, find out what's going on in the world, but you can't turn off the music here? I suppose it depends on the event. Um because January 6th was such a politically charged event uh, in such a polarized nation and context that we really wanted to go as middle of the road as we absolutely could. But another recent example where we responded very differently was uh, this past February when there was the shooting at Michigan State University. And in that case, the staff and I as quickly as we could, put together a list of every recording in our library made by Michigan State University faculty and alumni and all of their fight songs and their alma mater. And I realized that playing a a fight song uh, following the event of a mass shooting might feel inappropriate in some way, but we also were expressing solidarity. And that's how we framed it that day was we're featuring music by MSU musicians all day in a show of support and solidarity with our friends and colleagues at Michigan State. It it just sort of depends on the event and what is an appropriate musical response. You're listening to a conversation between Sarah Barup Neal, gallery manager at the Glen Arbor Arts Center, and me, Amanda Sewell, music director at Interlochen Public Radio, about how musicians responded to the events of September 11, 2001. For a playlist featuring many of the songs that Clear Channel effectively banned for a period after 9-11, check out the post for this podcast at interlochenpublicradio.org. Let's talk now about music that was written soon after the events of 9-11, maybe within a year or so. Uh, Classical composers responded to the events of 9-11. And in fact, that's how you and I got together on this conversation was you heard a special that I produced for classical IPR about classical music written for 9-11. And I'm glad to have an opportunity to talk about more pieces than just the ones I included in the special, too. I wonder how many people are surprised that um, people who are involved with composing and playing classical music would take on 
a subject like this. I suppose there are stereotypes about what classical music is. Um, and I'm wondering if we've all been, um, haven't fairly judged classical music's range and depth. Well, even Beethoven responded to the events in the world around him when he composed, but I think sometimes we forget that because so long has passed since then. So it's really not out of the ordinary. Uh, one in particular is Eric Awazen. He was actually teaching a music theory class at Juilliard in New York the morning of September 11, 2001. So he was right there when it happened. And within a year, he wrote a piece called A Hymn for the Lost and the Living. And that was his way of portraying what happened there in the in New York in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. And this is more of a, of a memorial piece. And he said it's supposed to be a memorial for lost souls that are treasured in our memories. So that's one kind of musical response to being right there. Another classical composer is Trevor Weston, who I think did perhaps the opposite <laughs> of Eric Ewazen in a choral piece written right after 9-11 that's called Ashes. And here he says um, he was, Trevor Weston was really taken by the image of people running away from the oncoming cloud of ash and rubble. I mean, I think I know that image. We, it was really burned in our memories that day. Sure was. And so the piece itself is very static. And he says it's, it's supposed to evoke the sound of like being frozen in place, which is definitely how I felt watching. I mean, I'm watching this cloud like chasing people who are running away from it. It's like the worst possible movie moment of not knowing what's going to happen to these poor people. Trevor Weston actually set text from Psalm 102. Hear my prayer, Lord. Let my cry for help come to you. For my days vanish like smoke, my bones burn like glowing embers. For I eat ash as my food and mingle my drink with tears because of your great wrath. So very different sort of choral psalm setting than we might necessarily think of when we first head out to, to a choral concert. And another composer who was also in Manhattan at the time and responded musically was Julia Wolf. And she wrote a concerto for amplified string quartet and orchestra called My Beautiful Scream. And she said this was kind of her way of processing what happened, that she, she would feel like she was going to die, but she also had a life with a lot of joy. She had young kids that that were living with the joy that kids have at that age and so she was simultaneously like having this really wonderful life with kids but then also being in this horrific event that is unfolding around her and so she just felt like she had this internal scream that that was happening 
And so the whole piece is meant to be just this sort of very long, drawn-out scream to depict internally how she was feeling in those in those days and weeks after 9-11. Um, I'm so interested, too, about the, the tidbit that she's got this happy life, too, that her children are there as a source of joy and magic for her. And then, again, 180 degrees in opposition, there's this thing going on in her backyard. Let's switch gears and uh, talk a little bit about some pop music that was written right after 9-11. Uh, Sir Paul McCartney was actually in New York, uh, and not just in New York, he was in a plane on 9-11. He was on the tarmac at JFK the morning of 9-11, and, and he saw everything happen from an airplane. I, I, can't, <laughs> I, I can't even start to think about what that would be like. So almost immediately, Paul McCartney turns around and writes a song called Freedom, and he performed it the next month at this big all-star charity show at Madison Square Garden, and it was, it was a huge hit at the time. People really, really need the these pieces of music to hang on to when something so unintelligible, for which we have no experience or context, the people who work in the arts trot in and they start doing their thing and they start translating these things and give people something solid to hang on to. interesting about the Paul McCartney song is that he played it a lot for about a year or so but then he stopped playing it he was frustrated because he felt like it got co-opted for basically what he thought were all the wrong reasons like um, the George W. Bush administration and and the war on terror and he felt like his song was being used uh, in support of actions and perspectives that he that he didn't share, that he didn't subscribe to. So I don't, I don't think he's played that song live for quite a while. He sort of gave it, gave it away, I guess, as it were. Lots of times, uh, artworks, pieces of creative work like this do get co-opted. And it always makes me wonder what, um, how do artists control how their works are used? I, I'm not sure they can. I mean, a, a great example is uh, Bruce Springsteen mm -hmm. and born in the USA in the 1984 presidential campaign where um, he, he was pretty outspoken about the Reagan campaign's use of it and that he wasn't 
in support of the Reagan campaign's use of that song. And so then the Mondale campaign turned around and said, hey, Bruce Springsteen supports the Mondale Ferraro campaign. And Springsteen's people were like, well, no, no, I didn't say I endorsed you guys either. So um, it turned into this whole you know, wanting wanting to have Bruce Springsteen in the song uh, on your side, which in 1984, of course, of course, you <laughs> you wanted Bruce Springsteen's endorsement, and so I think that's a great example of of people really wanting music to support their their particular perspective, and the artist going, it's not it's not really any of those things. Let's look at a couple of examples of country music from this period right after 9-11. And one is Toby Keith's Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue. And the subtitle is The Angry American. That's a very different perspective than a lot of the musical responses we've heard so far. The the lyrics talk about the Statue of Liberty shaking her fist and we're going to light up your world like the 4th of July and... In fact, even the U.S. of A. is going to put a boot in your ass. It's the American way. It's the American way. Sam, put your name at the top of his list. There's certainly a lot of, of anger and, and adrenaline in this particular musical response. And, I mean, even Toby Keith said at the time, look, this song is not, is not for everybody. He said he, he wrote it from his heart. He was angry about the attacks and... And this was how he chose to respond musically. And it's particularly interesting because of the idea of patriotism. This is one particular view of patriotism. And Toby Keith got into it not long after with Natalie Maines of The Chicks. Natalie Maines was a big critic of this song and of Toby Keith. She said it was ignorant. It made all of country music sound ignorant and it didn't have any tack. And so she not only criticized that song, but then some of you will remember in 2003 when Natalie Maines said she and the other chicks were ashamed that George W. Bush was from Texas, which caused this massive backlash to the chicks within the world of country music because a lot of people disagreed with with her point of view and so the chicks had a had a real moment there of of response and toby keith of course <laughs> uh toby keith was unhappy with natalie main so what he did was photoshop a picture of her with saddam hussein uh, but Natalie kept it classy. No, she didn't at all. Um, <laughs> she wore a shirt to an awards show. I remember this. It said it had the letters F-U-T-K on it that she said at the time was Friends United in Truth and Kindness, but then later told the truth that the F-U-T-K, the T-K referred to Toby Keith. And I'll let our very astute listeners fill in the rest of what what she would have meant by that statement. I find this all very interesting because when 9-11 took place, it was 
my observation that people were finding, trying to find a way for everybody to huddle together in solidarity. This was something that was being done to the United States, I think was, is a short way of describing the mood at the time. Um, but as we move further away from the event, you start getting these kinds of responses where everything isn't so cozy and kumbaya. Although we're going to look at an example here in a bit that reminds us that not everybody wanted to come together with everybody else right after 9-11, particularly uh, Muslim Americans were ostracized almost immediately. And so maybe there were certain groups of people who wanted to come together. I think there was certainly... Uh, an inclination by others to to keep certain people away. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think, although we, I remember seeing lots of American flags everywhere and thinking, what what exactly does that mean <laughs> to um, to fly an American flag right now? Well, let's talk now about music that was written with a few years or a little distance between the music and the events of 9-11 in, in a variety of genres. One is music of Steve Reich, who is you know, really one of the leading American composers since the 1960s. The piece is called WTC 9-11. And a little joke there for the classical musicians is WTC is also the abbreviation for the Well-Tempered Clavier, a book of piano pieces by Johann Sebastian Bach that lots of people uh, played when they were learning to play the piano. Of course, WTC uh, in this context means World Trade Center 9-11, but it always makes me pause for a moment when I look at the title of that. So this piece came about in in 2010. The Kronos String Quartet asked Steve Reich for a piece of music, and all they asked was they wanted a piece for string quartet and pre-recorded voices, but they didn't specify a topic. And Steve Reich turned around and wrote them this piece about 9-11. And so the pre-recorded voices that he used in this work came from the archives of the New York City Fire Department and from NORAD from September 11th, 2001. And then he also gathered voices recorded of family members of his that were just four blocks from the World Trade Center the day of the attacks. It was chaos. Chaos. It was chaos. Nobody knew, nobody, nobody knew what to do. And he took these voices and other sounds and built a piece for string quartet around them. Of all the pieces you chose, this one has moved me the most. And it's the inclusion of the human voice and how the music is built to, it's almost a, it's not a call and response thing it's it's interactive yes in and way. the music mimics the cadence 
of some of the phrasing from the recorded sections. We engulfed everybody. The human voice is used in so many ways throughout the history of music, but this is text, this is spoken word. Some of it you can understand very clearly, some of it you don't need to have it be clearly, but you can tell from the sound and the the delivery of whatever's being said that something is not good. I'm going to start with one of the sounds in here that's that's not a human voice, which is in the beginning, you have the string quartet that sounds like a phone left off the hook. Many of our listeners will remember what that was like to hear the sound of a phone left off the hook. And in the days before texting and voicemail and even answering machine, how upsetting potentially it was to call and hear that sound of the phone left off the hook because you never did that on purpose. If the phone was left off the hook, something Something wasn't right in Denmark. Something was up, yeah. And so that sound alone still triggers in me sort of an uh uh-oh response. You're listening to a conversation between Sarah Birup-Neal, gallery manager at the Glen Arbor Arts Center, and me, Amanda Sewell, music director at Interlochen Public Radio. We're talking about how musicians responded to the events of September 11, 2001. It's all part of a larger project being presented at the Glen Arbor Arts Center called In Translation. It's looking more broadly at how artists respond to life in the 21st century. To learn more about the In Translation project, go to glenarborart.org. Let's talk about United 93, first of all, which was a 2006 film directed by Paul Greengrass uh, with music by John Powell. And it, it happens in real time. It's about the the passengers on United 93, and it takes place in real time from when the flight takes off to when the passengers overpower the hijackers and they end up crashing the plane in Pennsylvania. we The hijackers were flying the plane towards the U.S. Capitol for an attack there, but uh, we believe that they thwarted that attack, but of course still all lost their lives in the process, but likely saved hundreds of other lives. It's a very powerful story, and the film has this very quiet, very suspenseful soundtrack throughout by John Powell. So many times we watch films and the music is there um, moving the action along, but it doesn't register 
except for for watching a musical, of course. <laughs> and then that's a whole different ball of wax. We'll get to that here in a bit. <laughs> but just from um, in terms of music in films, what why do people want to add the music to the film? What does it do to, for the story? Well, every director has a different goal for the music. One day we can have a long chat about Stanley Kubrick or or other directors and how they use music. But um, I think it depends on the director's view. Do they want to heighten sort of the interior lives of the characters? Do they want to just amplify what's happening on the screen? I'm thinking about, you know, your average sort of Marvel blockbuster film where you have the chase scenes and the explosions and the music is like you know like just keeps your adrenaline going and really really pushes it but then there's there's music like in this film where i think it really highlights the interiority of of the characters in this film i mean we don't like we know what's going to happen at the end of the film. We don't need the music to tell us we need to be feeling suspense right now. Like we, unfortunately, we we know what's gonna happen to all of these characters um, at the end of the film, which is interesting to me because United 93 is about a kind of heroism. You know, these folks sacrifice themselves to potentially save others from, from an attack. But the way the music highlights that heroism is not the same kind of heroism we would have in in an action movie, in a car chase movie, in a in a Marvel movie. It's very very quiet and sort of understated. Another fictional film about the events of 9/11 was extremely loud and incredibly close. That's from 2011. Uh, based on a 2005 novel by Jonathan Safran Foer that was directed by Stephen Daltrey and had music by Alexandre Desplat. Frankly, um, this soundtrack kind of sounds like every other Alexandre Desplat soundtrack I've ever heard, which is fine. I mean, each composer has a brand, but again, not necessarily a soundtrack about the kind of heroism we might associate with 9-11, but that's perhaps appropriate because this book is about an eight-year-old boy who's trying to find more information about his father who was killed on September 11th. And so a lot of the book and the film is about this boy kind of on this solo quest and the people he meets along the way trying to learn more about his father. So a giant bombastic score might not be the most appropriate. Again, you've got another main character in a film that's got a lot of interior journey taking place. And maybe he is on a hero's journey, if only to put the puzzle pieces together about his own family. And how do you use music to help propel that idea? One thing about the score is that there are some orchestral parts, but it also prominently features the pianist Jean-Yves Thibaudet. So there's a lot of piano music in it. And piano is is a solitary instrument. To me, that that helps evoke some of this boy 
doing all of this exploring by himself and and his imagination and his journey is the emphasis on the piano as an instrument in this particular score. So I think that's quite a quite a brilliant thing that Desplat did. Well, speaking of very different kinds of sounds, why don't we talk about musical theater? The musical Come From Away by Irene Sankoff and David Hine, it was later adapted into a film. It's it's about Newfoundland. <laughs> All great musicals are about Newfoundland. There were 38 planes that were grounded in Gander, Newfoundland on 9-11. There were 7,000 people on these planes who were stranded, essentially, in, in Gander, Newfoundland, for five days. But they weren't really stranded, and that's kind of what this, this whole musical is about. It's this this tale of how this little Newfoundland town supported all 7,000 of these people who just showed up and, and how they took care of each other, but, but also how they turned against some people as well. For example, at one point, there's a Muslim passenger who is strip-searched before they'll let him get back on the plane. Sometimes I catch them when they think I'm not looking and I can see the fear in their eyes. So it's not just, you know, a heartwarming, feel-good story about everybody taking care of everybody, but it's also a look at some of the really ugly realities that that happened in responses to 9/11. The stage version of this of this production versus the film version is kind of stripped down. There's the players on the stage with, from what I can tell, is very little uh, propage. <laughs> there's there's not a lot of other stuff besides the players and their creative abilities. And in that case, then, the music becomes almost a, a character in the in the production. When I think of musical productions, in my background, it's hair, it's the music man, it's um, all these things with these tremendous scores and singable lyrics. This is very interesting to me because this is not the kind of Broadway play music that you would necessarily have the uh, a cast album and just sing along with while you're washing your dishes and tap dance and tap dance. (laughs) Yeah. It's, um, it's a a different kind of musical that, and yet like hair, for example, is responding to a historical event. Um, one track in this musical is called prayer and in it, the passengers are all, 
trying to find solace in in different places of worship around the town. And obviously with 7,000 people, you're going to have different different religious points of view, different spiritual points of view, and all of those trying to come together to, to find solace. And once again, heroic things take place in places that are unexpected. You probably didn't wake up this morning thinking, oh, Gander, Newfoundland. It's the, the heartbeat of heroism during this particular event. That stranding of the plains was such a, a big deal. The, the skies were quieted. Thanks for listening. I'm Amanda Sewell, Music Director, Interlochen Public Radio, talking with Sarah Birup Neal, Gallery Manager at Glen Arbor Arts Center. For playlists featuring the music we discussed, plus many more examples, look for the post for this podcast at interlochenpublicradio.org. The exhibition In Translation, Exploring the Role of the Arts in the 21st Century, is on display at the Glen Arbor Arts Center through the end of October. For more information, go to glenarborart.org. This is Interlochen Public Radio. Studio A is a production of Interlochen Public Radio, part of Interlochen Center for the Arts. Learn more at interlochenpublicradio.org.